it on. Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here in Oxford, and as we have been for more than a year now, can you believe that? No. Using... <laughs> I just refuse to believe it. <laughs> I like that. Just don't accept that this last year has happened. But I, <laughs> I am using the internet to magically record a podcast with the voice you just heard, my co-host, <laughs> Octavia Bright, who is miles away in London. Hi, Octavia. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm actually not in London. I'm just a disembodied voice floating inside the space. <laughs> Another way of dealing with the pandemic. Very fascinating. That's right. Just full dissociation. That's where I've got to. I'm good. I'm actually making minestrone. Not right this minute, obviously, but I'm, um, I'm very excited because for once in my life, I was organized enough to get dinner on before we started this session. So I will be rewarded with this piping hot minestrone soup when we finish, which is not only a really nice thought, but also... I'm feeling very satisfied because I've used up all my old cheese rinds in the soup and proved to John that they are worth keeping because he thinks he's always been a bit horrified by me <laughs> squirreling away all of the Parmesan rinds. And I'm going to prove him wrong. So that's how I am. How are you? I'm good. I'm now thinking about Parmesan rinds because I am obsessed with Parmesan and I put it on everything to the point where I go through like one big hunk of Parmesan a week, which Eddie mocks me for, but he's also been saving the rinds, but we haven't actually done anything with them. And so the other day I was going through the freezer and I found this giant bag of Parmesan rinds <laughs> that are just in the freezer. So maybe I should make some minestrone soup. Minestrone is the best use for those rinds. I'm also... So happy that Eddie is a kindred rind hoarder. He's a rind hoarder. <laughs> I can tell you that one of the rinds that's in my soup tonight is a year old, hands down. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. I'm not that horrified by the rinds, but I'm just uh, confused by them. So this is this has been great. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm fine. And I'm also thrilled that our guest today on the show is Catherine Angel, whose latest book, Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, is a short and thought-provoking examination of women's desire in the age of consent. Inspired by Catherine's book and her discussion of the necessity of vulnerability in sex, the theme of our show today is vulnerability. We are going to talk about some of the books that explore vulnerability in relationships and the complicated terrain of consent, as well as the vulnerability, of course, of writing itself. We always like to do that, get meta. So Octavia, do you want to introduce Catherine? I sure do. Catherine Angel is the author of Unmastered, a book on desire most difficult to tell and daddy issues. She directs the MA in creative and critical writing at Birkbeck, University of London, and she has a PhD from the University of Cambridge. And we also have some really exciting news to share about Patreon, don't we, Octavia? We do. So our Patreon is now live. Um, to begin with, we're going to start out with a single membership level of £5 a month. If you're listening from elsewhere, you'll it will convert automatically into your local currency. Um, and this will give anyone who becomes our patron an access to an exclusive extra special show each month. And um, if you become a patron, you'll be able to suggest themes for that show. So if you love listening to our interviews with authors and our themed minisodes, this will help pay for the work that goes into those shows 
and get you even more super exclusive literary friction. So you can find us at patreon.com forward slash lit friction, where you can also enjoy an extremely cringe welcome video <laughs> and other delights. So please uh, consider supporting us on Patreon. And um, thank you very much. But for now, stay tuned for our interview with Catherine Angel, a more general discussion of vulnerability in literature. And finally, we will give our usual book recommendations. So let your guard down for the next hour of literary friction. I like that one. That was good. Thank you. I was happy when I came up with it. Do you think that was okay? I didn't really say much about how I was, but I talked about Parmesan. I mean, you shared a lot about your love okay. of Parmesan. One Parmesan a week. Carrie yeah, Plitt, that is like... It's really bad. <laughs> it's blown my mind. I mean, I, I think that that was a moment of vulnerability, actually. <laughs> Catherine Angel, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading from Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again. Do you mind setting it up for us? Sure. So this is from the first chapter, a few pages in, and I'll just start. In an interview, one target of Harvey Weinstein's campaign of sexual intimidation spoke of having been afraid to poke the bear afraid when confronted with his demands to do anything to inflame his anger, violence, or desire for retribution. In his January 2020 trial in New York, one witness told the court that if he heard the word no, it was like a trigger for him. Women are taught, not least by coercive men themselves, to care inordinately about men's feelings. They are socialized to feel responsible for men's well-being, hence also for their anger and their violence. They're also taught that if they give signals, they must see things through. That if they say no after apparently showing interest, the repercussions are ones for which they only have themselves to blame. A hurt male ego is one more likely to lash out. And since much social communication is indirect, especially when fear enters the picture, women may say no cautiously, gingerly, covertly, so as to allow a man to save face and to avoid antagonizing him. A cautious no, however, can fail to be understood as a no, and its very caution and delicacy can come back to haunt a woman in courtrooms, in the realm of allegations and scrutinised behaviour. Did you say no loudly enough? Did you push the bear away? Saying no, then, is difficult, but so too is saying yes, so too is expressing desire. For one thing, the vocal expression of desire does not guarantee pleasure for women despite the gung-ho, enthusiastic tone of much consent rhetoric. In Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You, writer Arabella and her actor friend Terry are in Italy, staying in a swanky flat in which Arabella is trying to finish her manuscript. They go out clubbing, and Terry ends up leaving early, navigating her way home via a bar where a local man comes onto her. Previously, we've seen him with a friend pinpointing her, but by the time she meets him, he is alone. They dance, the sexual tension builds, something looks sure to develop. Then the other man arrives, and they don't reveal they know each other. From Terry's point of view, the threesome that ensues seems organic, fortuitous. When they've had sex, or rather after the men have come, the two unceremoniously get dressed in a hurry to go home, leaving Terry hanging. They acquired their pleasure, they reached orgasm, but where did hers figure? 
She'd been up for the sex, but that doesn't preclude her feeling used and let down. Deflated, she watches them walk down the street in complicit camaraderie. Their friendship and its concealment seem clear. Tebby has a disturbed inkling that alongside her own sexual curiosity was there manoeuvring her into place through a subtle, ambiguous form of deception. Our consent, saying yes and expressing desire, a guarantor of pleasure, do they preclude men's instrumentalization of women? Of course not. Pleasure and the right to it are not equally distributed. Saying yes and naming one's desires clearly is also difficult because of the sexist scrutiny to which women are relentlessly subjected. Many rape and assault trials turn not on whether the act took place, but on whether a victim consented. Consent then gets blurred with enjoyment, pleasure and desire. The ideal victim, as one prominent British barrister has put it, is preferably sexually inexperienced or at least respectable. Evidence that a woman has used apps such as Tinder to meet sexual partners can work against her in a courtroom, even if it's irrelevant to the allegation before the court. And a woman's willingness to have casual sex with a stranger often counts heavily against her in a trial. If the case in court resulted from a contact made through a hookup website, there would be little hope of conviction, the barrister writes. You can't be raped, in other words, by someone you met on Tinder, by someone you're thought to have met out of a confident desire for sex. A few years back, when I wrote a book in the first person about sexuality, about its joys and pains, about the light and the dark, I was repeatedly asked how I decided to take the risky, exposing step of writing about my own sex life. And I was repeatedly told that I was brave. People who liked the book said I was brave, saying this in praiseful, admiring tones. And people who disliked the book said or wrote the same thing in rather more horrified ones. The common thread was, I came to feel, a certain wide-eyed incredulity, an acknowledgement that to talk about one's sexuality as a woman is reckless. I, for my part, had to work hard to keep at bay the knowledge that pulsated under all those responses, that writing publicly about my sexuality could, until the day I die, be used as evidence against me. I could not forget, though I had to try quite hard, that were I ever to have to accuse a man of assault, my exploration of sexuality on the page could bring me harm, could let a man off the hook. When I sensed that shudder, that ripple of horror going through others, I assumed it was the familiar repulsion at a woman speaking frankly about sex, a gendered disapproval, the double standard. But perhaps some of that repulsion always reflects what we all know, that a woman who exposes herself in a world that both desires and punishes that impulse is making herself vulnerable. Her vulnerability provokes fear, which is easily converted into either contempt or admiration. The shudder is the spasm of recognition, and it's the collective warning. Watch out. Thanks, Catherine. I wanted to start by asking why you wanted to write this book and why you wanted to write it now. It took a long time to write, is maybe an important thing to say. So some of it was written, or or was sort of beginning to be written quite a few years ago. The material, especially to do with how we understand female sexuality and female desire and studies into arousal and, and that sort of component of the book. But it was really in the wake of Me Too and the, the Weinstein 
stuff and everything in sort of 2017, 2018, it was really when that was happening that I, um, first of all, I began to see that some of this material that I'd been thinking about for a while was hugely relevant to our ideas about what happens in harassment, what happens in assault. But it was also that there was something about that moment that seemed really fraught to me in that while it's a good and important thing that people, you know, feel able to speak out about um, the kind of bullying, coercive sexual culture that we live in, I began to think a lot about how um, the burden was being placed on women to resolve the problems of the sexual culture through their own speech, partly in relation to the past, you know, the, the speaking out about things that women have endured, but also about the future, about a burden that I was seeing kind of increasingly and repetitively placed on women in a lot of the very well-meaning rhetoric around uh, Me Too and consent, a burden placed on women to know themselves and to be able to articulate their desires really clearly in order to minimize the risk of sexual violence. And that struck me as something understandable strategically, but really important to kind of notice and to start to question a bit more deeply. Yeah, I wanted to ask you more about consent because I think that's, well, it's it's how you start this book. And for me, it was, especially with the conversations we're having right now, it was, it was just so useful to Im- unpack what consent can and can't do. And I love the point that you make in this book that consent is, of course, very important, but we're almost just placing too much on it consent does not guarantee good sex and all of these terms being thrown around like enthusiastic consent um, it's it's sort of like it's supposed to make up for the fact that consent is is just saying yes and and consent assumes that women know what they want and what they desire and that just isn't always the case so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um enthusiastic consent in the way that it relates to to sex positivity and why you you don't think it it can quite capture what we want from good sex yeah and you know I think I mean it's important to say at the outset that consent is absolutely vital obviously we should only have sex with people who want to have sex with us and you know affirmative consent I think is broadly the right kind of notion of consent it's a notion of consent that takes for granted the importance of women's own um, interest in sex, the fact that they're not just there to say uh, no to a man's advances, that they have their own desires, their sexual agents, um, and that it's important to, to establish that your sexual partner wants sex with you. And I think that is absolutely right. And I think that, you know, there is so much amazing work around consent education and sex education that is really mindful of the difficulties of consent and the importance that, you know, consent is ongoing and that the acknowledgement that desire changes, you know, you you don't just give consent at the start of an encounter and that's it. And, you know, consent acknowledges that. But what I find disturbing is in um, a lot of the kind of wider rhetoric around consent, this idea that I've seen in so many places where women are addressed as the kind of, the, the place where sex has to become good is sort of in in women's own sexualities and in their own personalities where we are told that, you know, we need to discover what it is that we want and then sort of 
take that knowledge out in the world with us and uh, and use it as a form of protection and to say and then to say very clearly to our sexual partners what we want and what we don't want or whether we want sex or whether we do and i think it's it's so complicated because because we don't always know what we want we don't just always inhabit that stark place of yes and no or desire and not desire so the consent discourse often really addresses women and women are kind of asked either explicitly or implicitly to have a kind of confident subjectivity and assertive relationship to sex um, which denies the fact that women's confident expressions of their sexual desire are precisely what come back to haunt them in the courtroom, but also that we live in a sexual culture that makes it hard for many women to find out what their sexual desire is, because given the punishment, the shaming, the retaliation, no wonder women don't always have this kind of idealized access to their own sexual desire. So if as part of our kind of wishful thinking about how to make sex safer and more pleasurable for women we're kind of holding our hands over our ears and saying we must all be confident expressors of desire i think that only ever ends one way and that's badly for women yeah it's absolutely right when you put it like that it really it shows what an own goal some of the the ways that these conversations get necessarily in some ways flattened out in in like broader culture, right? When these discussions are happening in the media, let's say, or where they can't go into this level of, of depth yeah. and um, interrogation. And then the tidbits that get pulled out are these very small nuggets that don't get into the complexity of any of it. And I mean, you write yeah. a lot about this in the book, how the rigid binary of male sexuality and female sexuality are framed as two very different forces, as you put it. And it, you know, it's maddening because obviously when the two genders get kind of fixed in these binary positions, you lose the sense that sex is exploration for both parties mm. and that good sex is, as you say later in the book, a conversation. But I, I wonder if you can talk a bit about that, about this, this fixing of male sexuality in one pole and female sexuality in the other pole mm. and why, why it happens. It is really complicated because I think there is some necessary flattening that has to happen in the public realm often and in terms of education. And I do think that, you know, this is this is one of the binds I suppose I was trying to kind of really evoke in the book, which is that sexuality is really complicated. Sexual desire is really complicated. What I don't want is that to become ammunition against women because I think it does get used against women. It gets used in what I think are, are quite misogynistic accounts of consent and harassment and Me Too, where you know there's a kind of hand-waving that happens where complexity is invoked almost as a justification for not thinking about why sex is so difficult and painful and unpleasant and disappointing for so many women. And I very much want to reclaim complexity for women and to say, these things are really complicated and there, and there are some realms where we have to flatten our language perhaps for strategic purposes, but I don't want to predicate, you know, a sexual ethics on a completely simplified approach to sex. And that relates to gender, as you were suggesting, because I think that what we've seen quite a lot of, and I realise, you know, talking about the book more and more to people in the last few weeks I've really realized how much this book 
is me thinking my way through the kind of tale of post-feminism and of the 90s, because I think that there, there, there has been a tendency in the way we think about sex and gender to think that if, uh, if we want to be sexually emancipated and have the same freedoms as men sexually, if we want to no longer be subject to the double standard, we have to embody a sexuality that in fact is one that we associate with masculinity. And that is a trap that I talk about in relation to the sex research. But I think it is a really big part of, of the kind of tale of post-feminism, which is the idea that, you know, a kind of really assertive and kind of macho, brazen sexual desire where, you know, we acknowledge that we have sexual desire and that women have the right to pursue that desire, which of course they do, but that we, that that then t- gets turned into a kind of imperative about the kind of sexuality we should have. And that is not how a lot of people experience their sexuality, regardless of their gender. And in the book, I try to suggest ways in which um, this question about, you know, a male sexuality as kind of really libidinal and kind of animal and raw and spontaneous versus a female sexuality that requires, you know, much more time and much more elicitation, how those things get kind of reified I think in some of the sex research and actually I think that some of the sex research unconsciously is trying to answer the question of what men and women are like not just the question of what sexuality is like I think they are trying to settle that question. What do you think the rise in people identifying openly as non-binary will do to sexology's insistence I guess on the gender binary and how it operates differently in sexuality? I think it it will be really, really interesting. And I'm, and, you know, I'm sure there's work being done on that. You know, I'm looking at a, a kind of particular portion of the sex research and it's by no means, you know, exclusive, the material I'm looking at. But the material I'm looking at is that material that is comparing, you know, men and women in these kind of quite stark ways in terms of their physiological responses. But I do think that, that gender is a kind of... Um, form of play and a kind of that, that if we if we can see gender as a kind of gift with which to play that's very fruitful including of course the right to play with it in terms of traditional notions of gender right there's nothing inherently wrong with a position that is that is taking pleasure in you know ideas of mastery or you know the the idea of a strict binary can be very sexually exciting to people. And, I, and I'm, I'm not into stigmatizing, you know, any, any kind of form of sexual desire or gender. But I think that the more we can try to, to, to unmoor these things, you know, both kind of ideals of sexual performance and ideals of gender, and the more we can experience a flexibility within us, I think the more capacity there is for joy. Because, you know, part of the problem is feeling like you have no choice, like that there are areas that you cannot go to physically or psychically. I think that is extremely limiting for everybody. And I think that people manage their sexualities often in very careful ways for really understandable reasons, because sex is a frightening realm. It's a realm where we experience a kind of, um, you know, just a, a straightforward kind of physical vulnerability especially given gendered kind of dynamics of power and violence. But it's also a realm where 
in, in a kind of deeper way, we are all sort of rendered powerless at some point, including men. And the culture does a lot of work to deny that about men. And I don't want to buy into that, you know, without minimizing the fact that men are the, um, you know, the by the great majority, the perpetrators of sexual violence. I think it's it's really important to kind of try to invite men into a space where that kind of psychological and physical vulnerability is not so threatening. I want to talk a little bit more about sex research because you've you've mentioned it um, in, in the conversation and it forms a big part of the book. And I, that wasn't necessarily what I expected from a book called Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, which was kind of sold as a, as a book about consent. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you thought it was so important to bring sex research into your argument. Sure. Yeah, so there are two, I suppose, two main areas that I look at in the book. And one is research into arousal. So there's been a lot of work since the late 90s, especially. Um, Lots of research that's laboratory research that looks at men and women's physiological responses to stimuli, which tends to be pornography. And some of this research has attracted a lot of attention, especially, you know, five or so years ago, or maybe longer now. Um, Yeah, like the Bonobo study. I read about that. Yeah, And completely took the wrong conclusions from it. Yeah, Yeah, so it's it's really interesting research. And, and, you know, I am skeptical or or I'm curious about some of the, the motivations behind some of the research and some of the way that the research is set up. But it's absolutely true that, so this research... There was this one piece of research by Meredith Chivers and her team that showed that women manifest kind of great physiological arousal to a huge range of stimuli. So men and men having sex, women and women having sex, men and women having sex, bonobos having sex. So regardless of what their own sexual orientation was, their bodies responded. The same is not true for men. Men's physiological arousal is much more tightly linked to what they say they find arousing and what their stated kind of sexual preference is. But not just that, in women, um, there's this kind of great physiological uh, response, but they don't report subjective feelings of arousal. So they don't say that they are excited by the thing that their bodies is responding to. The way this got taken up in a lot of the media was, first of all, oh my God, women are so horny and crazy and out of control and polymorphously perverse and you know I think that may well be true but that's not the end of the story I mean I think we all are but um the narrative was oh my god women are much more like men than we thought much more constantly thinking about sex but also that they're out of touch with that and that narrative makes sense right because there is the sexual double standard there are all these ways in which women's desire is policed and punished and repressed so it makes a kind of intuitive sense that our sexuality might be, you know, this crazy volcanic force that is being constantly repressed. But I think that's a really dangerous conclusion to take because physiological arousal is not something that we can straightforwardly read desire or pleasure or consent from for all sorts of reasons, but not least because women experience physiological arousal in sexual assault. And some people theorize that that's a kind of uh, a, a mechanism that the body's evolved to protect against injury. 
people are capable of having orgasm under coercive circumstances. So we have to be very careful about what we infer from what the body does. And so in, in that part of the book, I'm arguing that there's a kind of investment in, um, in this idea of the body as the truth teller. And that historically, you know, there has there have been all these studies that attach all kinds of things to our bodies to try to find out what we're really excited by. And I think that's very kind of interesting, partly because it's often framed in an almost forensic way. It's about, you know, discovering this hidden guilty secret. And I think it's also related to this bigger tendency to try to find in sexuality and in women the answer to our kind of ethical problems around sex and the answer to sexual violence. So, you know, the, the, the physical evidence of the body, I think, functions for us as a way to try to figure out if a woman really wanted something. And usually when we want to find out if a woman really wanted something, it's because we want to find out if a man can be let off the hook for something. So I think there's a kind of forensic preoccupation that runs under all this stuff that I think is really, really worth unpicking. But it also comes around, you know, again, to this question of gender, because the other part of the sex research that I talk about in the book is about notions of desire and theories of desire. And it's very complicated because, you know, what I've just said, what I've just argued, you know, is that the body... We can't just read the body. We have to listen to what people say about their sexual pleasures and desires because the body can't just tell us a straightforward truth. But I also think that we as individuals, all of us, we can't tell the straightforward truth about our sexual desires because I don't think that sexual desire is something that we're entirely in control of, which means that when you get other kind of sexologists arguing for a picture of desire in women as something that needs to be elicited and res that's responsive to context and that's something that women uh, approach in an almost kind of cognitive way. You know, they may, they have incentives to have sex with their partners. They have interests in having sex. It becomes this kind of almost rational conception of sexuality in women, whereas men are still seen as this kind of very, you know, animalistically driven um, set of the population I think it's really fraught because it tends to reify this idea that you know men are the drivers of sex and women just kind of weigh it up but it's very complicated because the fact is that for a lot of women empirically that is the case that they they are you know they they need to be kind of they need to gradually emerge into sexual desire but again that might be because the context of the sexual culture that we live in is one that encourages and rewards male desire and really doesn't do the same with ours. So I guess, you know, I'm arguing for like seeing sex research in a way that, um, or seeing sexuality in a way that acknowledges we can never separate it from our sexual culture. And so maybe, maybe we should change the culture instead of obsessing quite so much about trying to study sexuality in isolation from it. Here, here. Yeah, <laughs> That's here. what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine, you end the book with a very beautiful description, I thought, of vulnerability. And I just wanted to ask you, why was vulnerability the place that you wanted to end up and, and the idea that you wanted to end the book with? That's a good question. 
I suppose I feel I feel very um, preoccupied and moved, I guess, by by how difficult it is to manage vulnerability. Um, you know, for for men and women alike, and I and I feel that part of sexual pleasure is vulnerability. It's it's one of the conditions that make it possible, because we have to we have to let go, we have to be open to someone else, we have to be open to ourselves and to what might happen to our bodies and our minds in in the kind of exploration of sex. But that's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do if you live in a sexual culture that makes you um makes you responsible for that vulnerability so if in our vulnerability in our in our asking for sex in our expressing our sexual desire in our being alone in a room with someone else we know we know because we see it all the time in the reporting of rape trials but and we see it on television and in films all the time we are constantly being warned that if we take risks we only have ourselves to blame so I think it's incredibly difficult to be vulnerable to sex, which is why I very much understand, you know, from my own life as well, like the things that sometimes you have to put in place in order to allow yourself pleasure. So, you know, on the one hand, I want to say that that we can't just wish vulnerability away. We can't harden ourselves and also require women, you know, in the kind of rhetoric to, to be armed with their own self-knowledge in order to keep them safe. We can't do that, A, because it's unrealistic, because vulnerability is part of the possibility of pleasure, but also because it's unfair. <laughs> I um, I really don't want to buy into a model of human relations where I have to know everything about myself in order to be able to interact with the other, partly because that would make so much pleasure in the world impossible, just the pleasure of conversation, let alone of sex, the pleasure of friendship. You know, we... You have to be malleable and porous to the other person's needs. We have to do that in order to be able to raise children or to care for people we love. We have to be able to, to sort of be affected and, and entered by other people's desires. And I want to take that really, really seriously. And I want it not to be used against us. I want vulnerability not to be invoked as a grounds for our harm, as a grounds for the injustice that comes our way, and also, I don't want it to be invoked as a way to dismiss the very real pains of sexual life, because the flip side of the joy of vulnerability is the pain of vulnerability. If you're open to something, open to someone else, and if you're open to pleasure, you may very well be disappointed. You may well be wounded. You may be hurt. And we can't sort of wish either of those things away, but we have to sort of start from a position where vulnerability is something that we are not so phobic about. And I think that that is really key to trying to like de-escalate and trying to, to make the stakes of sex feel less dangerous, even if sex is risky and it will always be risky. Catherine Angel, thank you so much <laughs> for being with us here today on Literary Friction. It's a wonderful place to end and it's been illuminating to think about these issues with you so thank you thanks so much for your lovely questions
This episode is sponsored by Picador. Picador's Poetry List was founded in 1997, and since then it has published some of the most prestigious, exciting, and original voices in contemporary poetry, from Carol Ann Duffy and Denise Riley to Jericho Brown and Kay Tempest. Poems can make sense of the world with precision in a way that no other form of writing can, and at this particularly polarized and often distressing time, we wanted to highlight one of the razor-sharp voices on the Picador poetry list, a poet whose work is politically conscious, emotionally insightful, and empathetic. My Darling from the Lions is the much-anticipated debut collection from Rachel Long, which has been shortlisted for the Forward Prize, the Rathbones Folio Prize, and the Costa Poetry Award. Long writes about sexual politics, cultural inheritance, family, race, and desire, with clarity, power, sensuousness, and wit. And Bernadine Evaristo has called Long an enchanting and heartwarming new voice in poetry. Stylist have said My Darling from the Lions is the modern poetry we need to read right now, and the Evening Standard said the pages of My Darling from the Lions crackle with the nostalgia of growing up and the hum of desire. Rachel Long is one of the most exciting new poets to start reading today. So our theme today inspired by Catherine Angel's book, Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, is vulnerability. I know this is very freshman year English behavior, and I love doing it too much, and I do it a lot, but (laughs) I did want to start this off with a definition because I found myself really surprised when I looked up the definition of vulnerability. So this is from the Oxford Dictionary. Vulnerability is the quality or state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed, either physically or emotionally. And isn't that interesting? I'm so used to thinking of vulnerability as something that is good, um, especially like in terms of relationships and functional relationships and how you get close to someone and intimate with someone that I forgot that it's very meaning rests on the possibility of harm. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think this is, it's important for us to talk about that. And it's what's so complex about vulnerability, especially when it ties into things like relationships, sex, consent. And maybe that's why it's such rich territory for literature. So vulnerability, once again, we've picked a very expansive sort of abstract theme as we are wont to do. And there are so many vulnerable people and things and animals in literature. And vulnerability takes so many different forms. But I thought it might make sense to talk about vulnerability in this context in terms of relationships, especially because that's the context in which it comes up in Catherine's book. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And actually, in the spirit of that, let me kick this off with a quote from Catherine's um, book from the last chapter on vulnerability, which I think sums that up absolutely perfectly, where she writes... Being porous, being susceptible to the other's needs and desires is what makes one tender to the feelings of others and what puts one at their mercy. And I think that is such an incisive way of describing the exact thing that happens when you essentially roll over and, and show someone your belly, you know? It's a risk, isn't it? It's always a risk. Very much so. Let's talk about how vulnerability has been depicted in relationships and literature. I mean, again, this is a point that I come back to a lot, but I think, you know, in fiction, what is fiction good at? It's it's about showing the gray areas and it's about showing, you know, the complexities of how we as humans relate to the world and the, and the many different paths that 
we can take in the world and the decisions that we make and the repercussions of those decisions. And that's so related to vulnerability in relationships, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the great thing about the art of fiction is that you can show both sides or you can explore without an agenda necessarily, which I think is much harder to do in nonfiction. There are so many great novels out there, but I'm obviously thinking of Mary Gateskill (laughs) and not necessarily a novel, but in her short, well, long short story, This Is Pleasure, which is one of the most perfect examples of somebody taking vulnerability and taking the kind of polemic around vulnerability and exploring it in a fictional world where she can treat each character with the same amount of care and dignity, I suppose, and still not be kind of standing in support of anyone's behavior. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's so true. And that the best things that I read about consent, which is so related to vulnerability, isn't it, Mm. Uh, were novels, because it is complicated. (laughs) You know, vulnerability is as I said at the start about opening yourself up to risk and harm, that is always going to create situations which are not easy to decide what's good and bad and and what's morally right. Yeah, I think absolutely. You know, one of the novels that really came to mind when I was thinking about this was Ocean Vuong's novel On Earth, We're Briefly Briefly Gorgeous, where his protagonist, Little Dog, has a, a love affair with the sky and the the vulnerability of these two young queer men exploring each other's bodies, the vulnerability of the sex that they have, but also in a society where they're, you know, them being gay is not necessarily totally cool with everybody. The way that Wong structures this relationship and the way that you your awareness of the way culture responds to men exploring vulnerability function to kind of make you very anxious for these two young men and whether they're going to come through this okay or not. And what I love about that novel is it presents a kind of queer utopia where characters don't necessarily fall down in the way you think they're going to. And it's a really rewarding read when you think about vulnerability because it pays off, you know, the the consistent vulnerability of these characters pays off. And you, you finish the reading experience feeling I found anyway, very committed to the practice of vulnerability as a result. Yeah. And I think on the flip side, novels can show us what happens when people aren't vulnerable in their lives or in their relationships. I was actually thinking of The Remains of the Day Mm, um, by Kazuo Ishiguro, which is all about someone who, I mean, it's a it's a novel in part about what happens when someone turns away from the vulnerability of relationships and emotion in service of an ideal and a job and the novel is a very slow gentle peeling apart of that ideal and a cracking of a kind of shell that has enveloped the main character with Stevens the butler Yeah, for sure. You know, another one that comes to mind for me is The Days of Abandonment by Elena Ferrante, which takes the question of vulnerability again in a different way by looking at what happens when a relationship ends and actually the gendered reality of who is left the most vulnerable by the ending of the relationship. So it's not so much the vulnerability that's explored within the relationship dynamic, but it's actually 
looking at how in a traditional heteronormative setup, women make themselves vulnerable to the men in their lives, uh, physically, emotionally, and also structurally, right? And in this novel, the woman who is left by the husband at the beginning is in this precarious situation. She's vulnerable in more ways than one. And I think Ferrante explores that and explores how that sense of vulnerability actually can encourage a person to get in touch with their sense of ferocity and the sense of unhinged kind of hunger really, really brilliantly. And it's another interesting way to kind of frame the question. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about memoir and nonfiction because that's another place where vulnerability is explored, isn't it? So do you think there's something more vulnerable about writing undisguisedly from life? I'm inclined to say yes, but I don't really believe that. I think that in a very literal sense, it feels like the answer has to be yes, because you are so nakedly standing next to your text as a writer of memoir. But I also think that the desire to kind of categorize like that is one we should be wary of, because I think that sometimes people tell their most vulnerable stories in their fiction. It's just that as the reader, you don't necessarily draw the straight line between the writer and their experience within the work. But that doesn't mean that the writer has made themselves any less vulnerable than the writer of memoir. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. I think that's true. And to expand that point, I mean, you could argue that writing itself is a kind of vulnerability. I certainly think that way as someone who works with writers and tries to be really sensitive to that. But do you think that's true? And also, do you think that books are better if they are more vulnerable? I definitely think that writing is an act of vulnerability. I think the act of making any kind of art is at its core an act of vulnerability because you are offering something of yourself up to the world, right? And it may be accepted, it may be rejected, or perhaps absolutely worst of all, it may be ignored. And I think that, you know, you're left a kind of jelly of expectation. I think it's hard not to be. I also think it's important to avoid qualifiers like better or worse when talking about works of art and vulnerability. But I can definitely tell you what I enjoy more. And I like to be let in by a work of art, be it a book or a poem or a painting even. But, you know, talking about literature here, I think that often what draws me into a book of any kind um, is a sense of mutual connection. And it's um, it's kind of a personal relationship where I open myself to the work, but I, I like it when the work also opens itself to me. And I guess that would be work that has a sense of vulnerability at its heart. What about you? Yeah, I agree about not saying that something is better, but I do sometimes feel like writing that isn't ready or isn't fully there is often writing that holds back in some sense and holds back from, it doesn't have to be you know a, a detail that's drawn directly from an author's life, but holds back from the real truth of how we are as humans. I think the best literature and the best writing actually does reach for those things in many different modes. And I think that is a kind of vulnerability to, as a writer, to search for something that's meaningful, even if it's uncomfortable. And my favorite books always do that. Yeah, I think that's true. Do you think writing can ever be too vulnerable? That's an interesting question. I think sometimes writing can be a little bit too raw. And I'm not sure that's the same as vulnerable, but I think sometimes, especially when people are reflecting upon an experience that they've had without distance, 
it can be hard to read and it, it can feel underformed. Yeah. I'm thinking about how I how I think about writing, especially when I'm thinking about taking it on as an agent. Sometimes I read things that are really powerful pieces of writing, but that need a bit more distance from experience. And and maybe that is an excess of vulnerability. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I mean, I think that as a reader, as a participant in any kind of contract between artist and consumer of the art, you, you want to be touched by it, but you don't want to be consumed by it, right? I think when people are sharing their deepest, most vulnerable selves with you in whatever art form they choose, there can be a fine line between coming away feeling burdened by it, which is really not what most people want. And I think the skill tracing that boundary is one that people develop, you know, over their over their lifetime, over their experience as a practitioner, as a writer or an artist. I, I think that's so true. I, I also should, should say, like, speaking of judging art, I think that's where vulnerability comes into play, too. You know, I'm very aware that I spend a lot of time making judgments about writing. And I think art is very personal. And I think a judgment about somebody's art can feel like a very personal judgment. So I, I try to be very careful about that <laughs> and, and mindful of that. It's so hard to put your creative work out into the world. And it is a vulnerable act. And I think we need to be gentle about these things. Absolutely agreed. So what is your recommended book about vulnerability? I mean, there were so many I wanted to mention, but I'm, I've gone with a memoir called To Throw Away Unopened by Viv Albertine, who we spoke to on the show many years ago about this book. But I found this memoir to be a really profound exploration of vulnerability. It's described in all the press as brutally honest. And there is something I mean, genuinely very unflinching in the way that Albertine probes herself and her perceptions of her own life. But I think really what got me about it is it's about the vulnerability of simply being part of a family and of that potential for that very deep love, but also the very deep hurt that can reside in those relationships because you are so exposed to your family of origin, you know? Um, and in this book, it's about the exposure that can happen when secrets come out and the kind of pain that that, that, that can leave behind. Um, yeah, I really recommend it. It's a brilliant exploration of it all. Mm, it's such a good book. What was yours? Well, I wanted to give another shout out to Emer McBride's The Lesser Bohemians. We spoke to Emer about this book, and it just remains one of the best depictions of the vulnerability of first love and sex that I have read. And I think that's probably because it is so specific and it doesn't turn away from those complicated moments of confusion or desire or shame or pleasure. It just delves into them. It's, it grabs them. It sort of lays them out in front of the reader in a way that felt incredibly refreshing and, and vulnerable and real. Yeah, I completely agree with you. That's a, it's a very special book. Okay, we're back here to discuss book recommendations with our guest, Catherine Angel. Octavia, would you like to give your book recommendation first? I would love to. Um, Maya actually feels like a very good recommendation for this show. Um, it's actually a book that I read alongside your book, Catherine, and they, they made very interesting bedfellows, actually. It's Simple Passion by Annie Erno which in classic Erno style is an incredibly precise and unadorned description of an experience from her life. And in this one, it's the intense passion of an affair that she had with a married man took place over a couple of years. And 
she describes this very all-consuming experience of desire in in a way that is so exquisitely clear, I guess. And it's a feeling that, you know, when you experience it, it's not very clear at all. And so there's something very gratifying in reading someone forensically kind of break it down in a way as she does mm. and she describes this desperate longing between clandestine meetings this all this anticipation the obsession really of the whole thing and the joy in the book is going into the obsession it's not really about the person she's obsessed with and it just shows us how the object of desire becomes kind of irrelevant to the experience of that kind of infatuation and that the pleasure in that kind of infatuation can exist sort of separate from the person in a way but also because it's Annie I know She's also talking about the passion of writing and the role that moral judgment plays in reading and in writing and also in loving and in sex. And it kind of challenges you to consider your own, well, the role that your own moral judgment might be playing in all of these things. There's also this scene where she describes the inscrutability of her lover and how she basically looks to his penis for certitude, which made me think so much of what (laughs) you were saying in your book, Catherine, about the way that the bodies reveal or conceal truths or not truths, you know, and how do we consider these things? Mm. But the, the final thing that it really left me with was that the affair happened at the end of the 80s. So it's all phone calls from phone boxes, endless waiting by the telephone, missed assignations. And it just got me thinking about how technology has completely mm. changed the landscape of infidelity, hasn't it? It's just, and affairs in general, lust and love and sex in general. So yeah, it's, I recommend it. It's, it's, a very, it's a very short book that will, I think, make you think a lot in ways that are interesting. Um, and it's a bit of a period piece as well because of the time, the time frame. Mm. I love her and that sounds mm. brilliant. And I have a copy sitting on my desk right here. So I've... Oh, get it, girl. You'll yeah, do it in I'll like it. an hour. It's love very short consuming. These days. <laughs> she has this amazing ability just to kind of go so deep so quickly like before you know it within the first page it's quite uncanny I think yeah it's immediate and interestingly it also like your book um begins with pornography and Mm. so that I kind of I really enjoyed them together I I, it was a very pleasurable pairing for me Catherine what is your recommendation so I chose gay bar why we went out which is by Jeremy Atherton Lynn and it's just come out this month, I think, with Granta. And I have just been raving about this to everyone. I just think it's one of the best pieces of writing I've read in years. It's so beautifully written. And it's basically a kind of journey through lots of different gay bars that he's known in his life. Um, he's in his 40s. Uh, it's from the US. But he moves from... London to LA to Paris and it's just an amazing piece of kind of psychosexual traveling with lots and lots of amazing kind of material about the history of the gay bar and uh, the history of the of the cities that these gay bars are in and the, the particular areas of the cities and it's an account of his own sort of exploration of his sexuality and his relationship with this one particular man it's just it's so beautiful and it's so interesting like on especially on Britpop there's this one chapter called the Adelphi about London and um, it turns into this sort of meditation on the 90s and the 2000s and the kind of post-gay moment and about assimilation 
And I think what I really love about his writing is that he is not afraid to deal with ambivalence. So he's really thinking about things like pride and shame. Um, and it's and it's very informed by a lot of, you know, sort of theoretical writings about affect and, and um, you know, gay shame versus gay pride. And But he just is so bold and brisk and kind of sexy in the way in which he writes about what it feels like to be in a gay bar and cruising and meeting this man that he falls in love with. And um, it honestly, like it just, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. It is absolutely beautiful and brilliant. I can't recommend it more. (laughs) I'm desperate, like desperate to read it even more so now. That was a beautiful recommendation as well. Yeah, it sounds so good. It's quite a lot of quiet fireworks in it, but it, but it's also very sort of easy and lovely. Quiet fireworks is a brilliant expression and I'm using (laughs) that in my next submission letter. Well, I am going to recommend Things I Don't Want to Know by Deborah Levy, which you have been telling me to read forever, Octavia. Um, And I'm almost sure you've recommended it on the show before, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. So sorry to our listeners who have heard this before, but maybe I'll give it a new spin or something. This is the first book in Deborah Levy's Living Autobiography series, the third of which, Real Estate, is out this year. And I think I we just both got a proof of, which is very exciting. And the second of which, The Cost of Living, caused me to reevaluate every decision I have ever made in my life, um, such as the power of, of Deborah Levy. But Things I Don't Want to Know is, is kind of about Levy's transformation into a writer, but in that wonderful roundabout way in which she tells stories, which means that it's a completely unexpected path that pauses at a hotel in Majorca, on the playground with her children, in her childhood home in South Africa. And in this very beautiful, indirect way, she builds an argument about what writing is and writing as a woman and how writing is often the act of expressing that thing in the title, the things we don't want to know. And she's just a master. Uh, It's a very short book. You can read it very quickly, but it does seem to contain multitudes. And I could see going back to it and taking completely different things out of it the second time. Plus, I just have to read you this amazing sentence about Marguerite Duras. Marguerite wore massive spectacles and she had a massive ego. Her massive ego helped her crush delusions about femininity under each of her shoes, which were smaller than her spectacles. It's just so perfect. (laughs) And it's like kind of a non sequitur and it's brilliant, um, but it somehow works and the whole thing just fits together in this incredibly pleasing, excellent way. So I'm so glad I read it. And thank you, Octavia, for for banging on about it. My pleasure. (laughs) She's the best. She is. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Catherine Angel and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram and you can get in touch by email litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please do rate and review us. It makes a huge difference and it really helps us reach more listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.